You're listening to Two for Tea. I'm your host, Iona Italia, and I'm assisted behind the scenes by my sound engineer, Justin Ward. This is a podcast about politics, society, science, and art, and about how everyone is wrong apart from us. I hope to provide a forum for calm, reasonable voices from across the political spectrum and counter the current atmosphere of frenzied partisanship and hysteria. Welcome to the conversation. Hello, everyone. You're listening to Two for Tea. I'm your host, Iona Italia. And my guest this week is Rob Brooks. Rob is Ciencia Professor of Evolution at the University of New South Wales in Sydney. He is the author of Sex, Genes and Rock and Roll, How Evolution Has Shaped the Modern World. And um, I'm uh, today I, I'd like to talk to him about his new book, Artificial Intimacy, Digital Lovers, Virtual Friends and Algorithmic Matchmakers. And we recently featured an article by Rob in ARIO um, on virtual friends. I will link to that in the show notes as well. Welcome, Rob. Thank you so much for having me on your show. Thank you for being here so early in the morning, because I, I guess it is must be there. Yeah, it's 7.30, so it's, it's actually a very humane time to cut a podcast, as long as the kids are away, which they are today. Ah, okay, good. Um, so I'm going to begin by reading a short passage from the book. This is called The Friend You Need. Whenever humans and machines interact, and those designing the machines use AI to tailor that interaction, there exists the possibility of artificial intimacy. Most of us have already met at least one of the big five AI assistants, Apple's Siri, Amazon's Alexa, Microsoft's Cortana, Baidu's Dewar OS, and Google's Assistant. They, and other artificially intelligent interactive systems, rely on three different kinds of artificial intelligence. Natural language processing, by which machines understand what humans are saying, quote-unquote, or writing. Natural language generation, by which machines generate written or spoken output that humans can understand, and machine learning, by which machines discover what to do with data without having to be explicitly programmed to do it. When I say, hey, Siri, please define artificial intelligence. Oh, that has just switched on my Siri <laughs> on this <laughs> computer. I'm just switching that off. Um, my iPhone records my question sends it to a cloud-based processing center to be processed and actioned entirely by computer, and the chosen response is sent back. Within little more than the usual human pause between question and response, I hear Siri's reassuringly calm voice answering, the theory and development of computer systems able to perform tasks normally requiring human intelligence, such as visual perception, speech recognition, decision-making, and translation between languages. All of the virtual assistants can help users recall information, find a recipe for tonight's meal of cacio e pepe, remind us to pick up pasta and pecorino on the way home, and kick Spotify into action to play that Lana Del Rey song about Norman Rockwell. People ask, or used to ask, those kinds of mundane things of their friends, housemates, or lovers during the course of a regular day. So mundane, indeed, that hardly anybody would question such simple acts of virtual friendship. Wouldn't everyone be relieved to have the right cheese for the cacio e pepe? What about the other things we can do for, for one another in our relationships? If Alexa can learn to give us what we need vis-a-vis -vis cooking and grocery advice, will it also learn to give us what we need, what we want, even when we don't ask? Smartphones have so many sensors microphones for telephony and voice commands, barometers for air pressure and altitude, motion sensors, ambient light sensors, moisture sensors, three-axis gyroscopes, touch ID sensors, and of course, cameras that can identify users' face and record video. When does all this sensory ability turn into sensitivity? The hardware is in place, 
coupled with all manner of artificially intelligent applications, we can expect devices to learn to infer our mental states, frustrations and desires, and then to act on them. How long will it be before your virtual assistant can sense from your tone of voice the speed with which you shift your phone from hand to hand and the lack of moisture on your fingertips that your anxiety is off the charts? And wouldn't it be a good thing if it can learn what you need in order to manage your own particular brand of anxiety and reassure you by playing a personalized track of autonomous sensory meridian response, ASMR trigger sounds, designed and optimized by machine learning to mitigate your particular form of anxiousness? Perhaps it will learn to sense when you slip toward depression and assess from the symptoms whether you need to talk or you just need somebody to talk quietly to you. It could then start playing Ralph Fiennes reading The English Patient. Digital therapists are already picking up their virtual pads and pencils. The first chatbot, Eliza, emulated a psychotherapist. Today, all manner of therapy chatbots exist to provide very real therapeutics help. So far, so good. Recipes, reminders and confessions might also um, be needs. And if well-designed and set up, applications like these will help people in their relationships with themselves and others. The potential for useful artificial intimacies that fill new and emerging gaps that help people unburden themselves, work through their issues and just get through all their tasks seems almost beyond limitations. The applications need not, however, always service good intentions. What happens when all we really want is a dose of schadenfreude or sadism? Will our learning all the time machines draw the line at showing us evidence for others' suffering? Having known a few rolled gold narcissists in my time, I know that they love their smart devices more than they do other people. Many would be quite happy to get high on their own customized narcissistic supply, served up by Cortana. Are we losing a generation or more who, transfixed by their digital reflections, slip away from society and merge with their online profiles like 21st century versions of Narcissus. I find this view too bleak, but nonetheless worth listening to and considering. So before I go into some of my questions, um, could you talk briefly about the three sections in your book? So it's divided into three parts. You look at virtual friends, artificial lovers, um, what you call doll bots, um, sex robots, probably the least sort of interesting part of the book, um, as well as VR and uh, smart sex toys and other things of that kind. Um, and also you talk about algorithmic uh, matchmakers. Um, could you give us a quick rundown of those, those two, three things? Absolutely. So... Um, I, I'm interested that you you also note that the sex robots are the least interesting of those technologies, really. Um, I began, well, I, I began the book actually writing um, about sexual conflict, evolutionary sexual conflict, and why and how it makes sex and reproduction and relationships so very complicated. Um, but it it was just another book about that. And I realized David Buss was probably writing a, a more compelling and authoritative book on this. And and then I got interested in all the stories coming out about um, about sex robots and how they were going to change us. The stories are all the same, though. They, you just see the same kinds of concerns and worries retreaded about these robots. Um, and there's a general lack of sort of critical thinking, in my opinion, about you know, can they ever get there and how far can they get and does it matter? Um, so the sex robots is where I began and where I begin the story of the book, but I come to very quickly to the conclusion that they're very niche. Um, you know, that they're unlikely. Well, by the time we're walking among them, unable to tell them apart from us, like we're in Westworld, um, you know, so much else is going to have changed uh, far more insidiously in many cases. So, um, they are the, 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 what I call the doll bots, because they're not really even robots yet, in my opinion. Um, they're part of the digital lovers, which are any 
technology that can sort of tap into and in some cases service human um, sort of desires for for sexual gratification and sexual relationships. Um, and then there are the uh, virtual friends, which I think are going to become the most important category of artificial intimacy. Um, and they are, they pretty much tap into our, the ways in which we make friends, um, and draw them near and become intimate. So intimacy by my definition, the definition is actually used in psychology is to integrate the other into your sense of self. And so to become intimate is to, to start folding someone into your sense of self. So, you know, a friend who's that close that if they were to betray you, you'd feel like part of you had died or if they were to die, um, you'd feel that way. Um, and then the third category are the probably the furthest along um, and, and certainly are having big effects already, and those are the algorithmic matchmakers. And they're a little bit different in that they aren't necessarily, um, you know, hacking into our preferences and our our evolved um, ways of interacting with each other as much as they are um, connecting, connecting us with what we want and with those preferences. So it could be YouTube, uh, which has a magnificent um, artificially intelligent algorithm that will not only look at what you like and serve you up things that are similar similar to what you've viewed already, but will actually make huge inferential leaps to new types of um, media and um, often surprise us, but in, in a very compelling way and keep us on the platform. Um, Facebook is another uh, algorithmic matchmaker in that it has algorithms that help us to find our friends or people who used to be our friends or people who could be our friends. TikTok and Instagram are very similar. Um, but I think the really fascinating thing about these technologies is that they're not three distinct types of technology, but they're starting to merge. And it's in those areas of overlap that I think the most compelling stories are to be found. So when the algorithm matchmakers like Facebook and TikTok start to emulate friendship, the friend-making techniques that we have, and start to, instead of facilitating gossip, become the, the, the person or the entity with which we are gossiping. You see virtual friends and matchmakers starting to merge. And likewise, when the sex robots, or, or more interestingly, in my opinion, virtual reality um, sort of characters that are involved in a sort of virtual reality pornography um, start to take on the properties of virtual friends that can build relationships and remember, you know, figure out what you like and remember what you like and, and have the sort of continuity of relationships. So virtual friends and digital lovers start to, to overlap. Those are areas where I think, um, the, these technologies are going to have a very, very big effect on our lives. I want to go back. Uh, maybe let's start a little bit with the, um, with the sexual stuff, with the digital, um, so you you call them digital lovers, and and um, interestingly, just then you said that the the VR enhanced porn um, and the smart sex toys and the, the mm -hmm. bots and those kinds of things would provide uh, would satisfy people's needs for sexual gratification and sexual relationships, and um, I can certainly see how this provides could provide you with gratification. Um, and I can also see how to some extent these are, are kind are are somewhat slightly more interactive versions of old fashioned fantasies and fictions. Mm. Um, and those this is something that I talked about a little bit in a previous interview with um Actually, both when I talked to Di uh, David Bass and to Diana Fleischman, mm. um, we talked about the concept of fake fitness, i.e., if you, for example, are, are if you are unable to find a girlfriend, you may, at some deep evolutionary level, be partially fooled by ejaculating uh, wh whilst looking at an image of a naked woman, mm. um, and that may provide you with some sense uh some kind of level of uh of satisfaction of that kind of of that need but it is um 
it doesn't seem to me like a relationship. And mm. I was wondering where the sort of OnlyFans, um, the, the popularity of OnlyFans, um, might belie that I, that sort of idea that we don't need, or we don't need a kind of connection with any other sentient being at the other end there. Because despite how much free porn there is on the, on the web, OnlyFans is very popular. And part of the popularity is that, um, a, a real individual is there and you can, ha- you can have little chat conversations with a person. Um, the popularity of camming, uh, is also partly based on being able to chat with a person to give requests and have them respond to your specific requests. There's an illusion, at least, of some, uh, of a two-way relationship. Whereas in these things, unless you really are, have, uh, um, some serious mental handicap, um, or psychosis, there's no illusion of a two-way relationship there. Yeah. Interesting distinctions, I think. Uh, I think, I mean, I'm I'm trying to figure out the best way into this subject because I seriously could talk, you know, solidly for an hour about it uh, because it's so fascinating. That that would be fine. (laughs) So, um, you know, in in one sense, uh, it's all an illusion. Um, Now, I don't know that I really want to start there because it's a a little bit bleak, but, um, you know, I think that it's really, really tempting to not only want to distinguish between sort of real and fake or degrees of realness, um, but to think that we know which ones are which. So, you know, demonstrably looking at a static picture of a naked person is only captures a tiny little bit of, um, you know, of what sex and sexual relationships are about. Um, and then a moving picture of somebody doing things captures a little bit more of that. Um, and I would say that going all the way up to, you know, a proper fulfilling relationship in which you both believe that you are, um, you know, that this is the real thing. Um, you know, that's, that's the, the, there, there are matters of degree all the way along there. I don't know that there is ever a strong, um, you know, line demarking the the real from the fantasy or the fake type of thing. Um, so going up to the to the real part to try and sort of prosecute that case quickly. Um, if you're in love with somebody, another person, or somebody you believe to be another person, um, and you believe that they're in love with you, um, then you find out that they were never in love with you, but they were manipulating you. Maybe they're some kind of, you know, narcissist Machiavellian individual who was simply manipulating you for some other purpose. Does that mean that your love for that person was any less real? Whenever I ask this question, um, I mean, I'd be interested to know what do you think if, if, if you were in love with somebody and it turned out that they weren't in love with you, although they gave every sign that they were, would your love for that person be any less real? Uh, I, I, I sort of, I'm not sure that that's quite the right question to ask. Uh, sure. so w- would your love be any less real? Um, sure. But part of a relationship is that it's not only your feelings on their own, but also a, an awareness of, that another person is involved and that other person also has feelings. So yeah. I would say two things there. I think that it's, one thing to be deceived, and obviously you can very easily be deceived um, online. Um, you can be catfished. Uh, you could be chatting to an AI uh, or to um, a friend of mine for, uh, works actually as a chat, as an uh, online dater mm. for, um, uh, for various wealthy people and executives who are actually looking for looking to date or find a relationship but don't have time to do to put in the hours on okay cupid mm. and so she she actually looks she actually swipes for them <laughs> and um and it. chats to potential dates 
And then if she finds somebody promising enough, then she sends their details to her client and her client will say whether or not he wants her to arrange a date and then she will set up the date. And then, of course, the client goes to meet the person in real life. So, you know, there are many scenarios in which you are you can be deceived as to the nature of the person or thing you're interacting with. Mm. That's one thing. But if I know that the thing I'm interacting with is just a computer algorithm, that's quite different. And I think that a sentience is a is a hard line here. Um, I mean, I could, I could develop very real feelings for, let's say, I have a um, an a doll, an actual doll, mm-hmm. um, Action Man or something. Um, could I develop very real feelings for Action Man? I guess I could. Um, I would suspect that that would imply that I really do have some psych- psychological issues. But would Action Man ever love me back? No. And I think if I had any sense that I was in a relationship with that doll, that would be just completely delusional. Sure. Absolutely. I think that's a that, that's a good example where you would really have to question yourself. And, you know, there are people who say that they are in love and in loving relationships and even consider the, the, their doll a spouse, you know, in the in the sex doll community, there are a number of such people, and they get really good media because um, you know they they carry on, they have social media accounts for their sex dolls, etc. And you know, you or I look at that and go, no, but you know, you're you're making the this whole thing is in your head. Both sides of the relationship are entirely in your head, and that's fair enough. I guess um, my point about the you know, if you were deceived. Would your love for for the other person be any less real? I think is an interesting question. A lot of people say no. I don't think it would be um, any less real, um, and so that opens the possibility that you know a very good uh, artificially intelligent entity, whether it was online or whether it was sort of embodied as a robot or whatever, um, could fool us into believing you know the- theoretically at least could fool us into believing that we loved it um you know the the steps that we take when we fall in love with another person firstly when we become friends with another person then as we become intimate with them um and share parts of ourselves that we don't share with other people um and then you know where we get to that that sort of mysterious business of romantic love those steps are algorithmic steps that we go through in order to um, achieve that, you know, fitness um, enhancing state of being in love and therefore of trusting um, another individual and cooperating with that other individual. So I think that it's, it's definitely too early in my opinion to rule out the possibility that these steps these steps could be emulated so well by um, an artificial intimacy that, um, you know, that that could happen, that people could really genuinely believe that they're in love. There's a lot of people willing to do that who are, maybe you would call it having psychological problems, but who are, you know, sufficiently afraid of rejection and of the lack of control that comes with, um, you know, depending on another person's feelings, etc., that they would be very happy to have this kind of, you know, love methadone that kind of kind of did the trick um, and satisfied them um, without without having to really have the entire package and all of the uncertainty and the simple not knowing um, that comes with what you or I would consider to be genuine love. Um, but just going back to the sort of more mundane point, it seems to me that all of the stimuli that lead to sex um, and, and, you know, sexual interactions that lead to, to friendship and romantic love, um, all of those steps are steps that can um, at some level be held up in a human-machine interaction. Um, and if they can't now, conceivably they could be. Um, and I think that, you know, we, we're very hung up in these discussions about, um, you know, 
a, a machine could never do this, a machine could never do that, a machine could never be enough, it could never deliver the full package. But for a lot of people, you know, they never get the opportunity to know the full package and they know that they are never going to get that opportunity. And sometimes, um, you know, good enough is the best thing that they could possibly hope for. You know, better than nothing is the best thing that they could hope for. And so whether or not machines get, you know, really good that we could all have, you, you know, satisfying romantic lives um, just, you know, delivered by a major international, you know, electronics and robotics corporation, I don't think that that's the, the main point. And I don't think we ever will get there. I kind of agree with you that, uh, you know, um, the machines will never be good enough to deliver the entire package. But that doesn't matter as much as the fact that, you know, for many people, it's just good enough, you know, is better than nothing. Mm. I I I I think the kind of good enough thing is doing a lot of work here. Um, mm. I mean, I can see how it could be, uh, you know, the smart sex toys and those kinds of things. These are these are masturbation aids. Mm. So I can I can see the helpfulness of that. And, you know, I can see the helpfulness of instrumental things like Google, but I think that, I, th I think I, um, that many people would be satisfied with a relationship with a non-sentient machine. Well, it wouldn't be a relationship. It would be just owning a non-sentient machine. Mm. Um, that in, in view of human interaction, that, that to me seems very, very unlikely. I mean, you talked about people who are afraid of rejection and who don't like the uncertainty of not knowing if the other person cares about you or not. But I think it would be very dissatisfying to solve that problem by knowing that the answer to whether or not they cared about you was a definite no. Mm. <laughs> you know, I, I'm going to move on a little bit to the sure. friendship part of this, which I think is actually the more difficult thing. Yeah. Um, because if you're talking about simple, like, sex bots and things it's basically masturbation aids so it's not really none of that is really about relationships it's in the friendship and companionship um that we have the kind of area that is more sort of uncanny valley mm -hmm. um uh, uh i mean i that's the impression i get from your book as well it's you know the 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 difficult thing or the tricky moral ground is is there real intimacy there, and not mm -hmm. not just a kind of physical stimulation or something? Okay, yeah, I completely I, I completely agree with you that you know you could you can view virtual reality and sex robots and all of the things that are you know sexually stimulating the digital lovers component when they sit on their own. You could view them as an advanced state of you know masturbations, you know slash pornography. Um, absolutely. And I think that you're right. The interpersonal, intersubjective truths are where, um, and, you know, and they, they do come back to putting these things together with, um, with technologies with whom you could potentially have a sexual relationship. But the, the real difficult problems are having that intersubjective relationship. So let's go there. Yeah, I still uh, kind of slightly balk at the word relationship because you know you're uh, um, when you're using a um, some kind of sex toy, so you're using a flashlight or something. Mm. Um, you can get pleasure from it, but you can't give pleasure back to the flashlight. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't feel to me like a relationship, um, and it doesn't really matter whether you add a kind of body onto the flashlight thing or whether you. Uh, have it in virtual reality form, looking through goggles or whatever it might be. There's, I mean, there isn't a there there. Um, whereas in a sexual relationship, uh, the other person also gets pleasure, well, preferably. Um, and that is also part of the interaction, the kind of giving of pleasure. And there's no giving of pleasure here. It's purely a tool like, um, uh, you know, when I, when I use a soup ladle or something, um, the soup ladle doesn't also drink the soup. That's true. Very true. But if the, if the object, um, can convey in a convincing way uh, the idea that it's getting pleasure, 
then the user can fool themselves or allow themselves to be fooled into believing that they're giving pleasure. And, you know, what that does is, yes, it, it doesn't make it into pleasure. It doesn't make it into something that's real. Um, but what it does is it allows the user to feel like their side of the relationship is real. And for them, that's enough. So that, you know, I, I'm obviously, you know, I don't think anyone would argue that, you know, something as static as a flashlight would be an artificial intimacy. But, um, you know, a, a virtual reality character that can remember you, remember what you like, and can can profess to have preferences of its own and then, you know, move or sigh with a kind of pleasure that suggests that they are gaining pleasure from the interaction. That's a very different kind of sex toy. And mm. it's one that at least is faking more aspects of the relationship um, and in that respect, you know, we, it would be made purely because faking those things would give the person more of a sense that um, that they're in this relationship and that it is some kind of a relationship, just like going to a sex worker who fakes orgasms for them mm. or being in a relationship with a partner who fakes orgasms in order to make them feel better, um, you know, gives them those same feelings. So the the realness of um, of the the user's side of things because it's really this is a very user centric view obviously i'm you know not particularly interested in whether the robot's experience is real because i know it isn't um but the realness of the user's view is not necessarily all that different from being in a relationship where somebody um is having sex and pretending to get pleasure from it because that's you know, how that relationship manages to bumble through or being in, a, you know, um, going to a sex worker and having them, you know, simulate pleasure. Um, and, and those interactions may not be, you know, the real deal, big capital L love, but, you know, they're human-human interactions, um, re- you know, interactions with sex workers in particular. Um, and so here, you know, I, th- I think that it gets a lot messier than sometimes we like to think. I still think there's a hard line between, um, you could certainly be fooled. You could be catfished basically by the algorithm, mm-hmm. but, um, uh, you would have to at least be deceived into thinking that you're interacting with another human being. Um, I mean, I, I do think there is a hard line between the computer code and uh, i think it's i uh, yeah I, I think those two things are very um different uh but i don't want to get too stuck yeah. on there so maybe we can talk a little bit about the friendship so i was quite um i was really fascinated by your the connection you drew between dale carnegie's book um how to make friends and influence people and um, the the idea of digital friends. Mm-hmm. So you say that Dale, one one thing that Dale Carnegie's book um, does is provide an algorithm for um, likability, a likability algorithm. Um, and he has a, a number of little sort of BuzzFeed style, this is your words, um, or I'm paraphrasing your words, BuzzFeed style sort of listicles. Um, and I, I, I've read that book, so I do remember them. And, um, you know, smile, say the person's name, take an interest in them, um, uh, remember details, personal details about them, um, etc. There's a kind of checklist mm. of things you can do to make a good impression and clearly if you can if a human being can learn those things from dale carnegie's book then an ai could learn those things from uh bootstrap machine learning just by observing human interactions mm-hmm. um you know and they could observe them in our um twitter dms or facebook chat or um you know in in online digital forums um, and then create a kind of convincing impersonation of friendliness. The implications of that feel uh, are, are quite sinister. 
Um, I mean, because even in Dale Carnegie's book, of course, um, his his book is not really about making friends. It's about um, making people believe you're their friend so you can sell them shit. Um, <laughs> and uh, um, so it's it's very much, uh, you know, it goes against Kant's categorical imperative. It's definitely using people as objects, but just concealing the fact that you're doing that, just being less blatant about it so that people will feel more warmly towards you. Um, of course, it's possible that you might become friends with your salesperson in a way that you couldn't become genuinely become friends with an AI because there's nothing there. But um, nevertheless, the, the, it's not a real friendship. It, what Dale Carnegie is describing is sales techniques. And so you say, um, this passage, this is from a, an article that, that you wrote. Um, and, um, you say, I find this passage particularly, uh, chilling. Uh, I'd love you to kind of uh, enlarge it a bit. Um, from now on, most new discoveries about human behavior will be made by machine learning algorithms rather than social scientists. These discoveries might not even be interpretable to human researchers, but they will prove very useful indeed for the machines and their corporate owners. They will get better and better at serving up to us what we want, what we think we want, and most of all, what advertisers want us to want. Ugh. Yes. <laughs> well, you know. All of the issues that we've been talking about so far really, you know, concentrate here. Um, but in a way, it's far easier to believe that this is going to happen because it, it's already happening. So I'm, I am really scared as a scientist, um, by the fact that most new discovery science about human interaction is going to take place um, online uh, just because of the volume of human interaction online and the fact that it makes, you know, the data is basically filed away for you, or not for you, but for for the people who own the platform that you're on. Um, so, you know, you're, you're 100% right. Dale Carnegie was a salesperson and he you know, honed his craft um, as a young salesperson who very quickly figured out how to take his sales territory to the, you know, the top of the US charts um, and made a bunch of money and then quit because he really wanted to be a lecturer. And he probably was a, a nice guy in many ways. He probably was a, um, you know, a good friend to many people and even, you know, somewhat of a friend to um to the people who he was selling things to in, you know, in that he, he knew how to be nice to people and how um, important that was. And so his six steps in, you know, how to make people like you or his, you know, 12 steps in how to be a leader or whatever are he's very sort of canny observer of human behavior. Um, but really he's, you know, this is early 20th century, um, Applied behavioral science that he's, he's managed to distill down into words. You know, most of us know all these things, smile, take an interest in the other person, but we've never really read about it or, or, or written about it or thought about it. We just have these intuitions because that's how we build our alliances. That's how we build friendships and cooperation. And they're not able to, to get by in the world. And those, those are the most human of human traits because those are the traits that enabled humans to become this hyper-cooperative um, ape that could leave the rainforest, you know, all of our closest relatives still live in little declining patches of rainforest, leave the rainforest and but spread into any habitat because we could figure out how to make a living in any of those habitats. So, you know, friendship um, and friend-making are really, really important traits. Um for most of us, it's intuitive. And so, you know, some people are good at it. Some people aren't so good at it. Dale Carnegie was obviously, you know, um, a seventh stand black belt in this stuff. And so, um, 
and, and he was able to distill them and distill them towards a, uh, you know, a commercial aim, which was to sell things to people. Um, but, you know, I think when we look back on, um, on Carnegie's book in a hundred years, or shall we say when our, you know, descendants look back, um, in a hundred years, what we know about human behavior will, um, probably make, you know, Carnegie's knowledge look really sort of quaint, uh, because there, there will be other rules. There are other rules. Um, and there are new sort of rules being written all the time in, um, in online interaction. And machines will figure those out really quickly, um, because they've got all the data they have, uh, for, for machine learning to work, it really needs some, something that says, you know, um, this is the thing you're looking for, and this is not the thing you're looking for. Um, so if, if what they want is to keep you engaged in conversations, it'll say, you know, what are the features of long running conversations? Um, and it will, they'll figure out that long running conversations take a particular course and there are a particular type of interactions. And very often there'll be things like Dale Carnegie outlines, um, in terms of becoming interested in other people, being a good listener, um, talking in terms of the other person's interest. However, there are other things that make for long-running conversations. For example, anybody who's ever been through, you know, a breakup will know that, you know, getting into a, a text conversation with your ex at, you know, 11 p.m. is going to be, um, a, a, you know, could well be a very long conversation and a very unproductive conversation. And perhaps that would be what, you know, is most efficient at keeping people on the platform, viewing more advertisements, clicking on more advertisements. Um, and so you can expect to be trolled by, um, bots that have learned via machine learning. You can expect to be sort of, um, have all sorts of baggage brought up, um, and, and used against you in ways that just keep you on that platform just as easily as you might expect to have pleasant interactions whereby you chat away and, you know, feel good about what, um, what happened in the conversation. The other thing about machine learning is, um, you know, it's often described as a, as a bit of a black box in that it's just this, you know, machine for applied statistical analysis and finding associations. Um, and, you know, when you're a scientist and you look to explain things in terms of statistics, we, we look for the simplest possible explanation. We have a bit of Occam's razor, um, and we don't build statistical models. That, you know, you can build a statistical model that will explain everything, um, but we want to not just explain everything. We want to understand things. So we're looking for lean models that allow us to have an understanding of what's going on in terms of cause and effect. Um, machine learning doesn't really care about that, um, at least the way in which most machine learning is applied at the moment. It simply looks for the output that it's looking for. Um, and so not only will, you know, companies like the present day Facebook and Google and Amazon, um, and, and Twitter know, you know, have, have this vast sort of store of knowledge about what people say to each other, what works. And therefore the machine learning algorithms will figure out ways to keep us on the platform and to, to sell us stuff we don't need. Um, not only that, but whatever the knowledge is that's in there is not going to be something that we can extract and go, ah, oh, yeah, that means that people work in this particular way. These are the biases that are involved, et cetera. We will discover nothing from it. Um, but the corporations will discover everything they need. Mm, yeah. Uh, one of the other things that you said, um, kind of even more, uh, even more um, uh, sinister in a way, is um, machines... Uh, so you, um, you write machines will probably even figure out how to make us like them more than we like other people. And I, th I think that that's connected with, so I'm, I'm, I'm paraphrasing you again. Correct mm -hmm. me if I'm misunderstanding you. Um, you talked about supernormal stimuli. So, um, uh, uh, you know, everybody knows supernormal stimuli in the animal kingdom are things like, um, uh, cuckoos that have the huge red gaping mouth because um, their their host parent birds respond to gaping moths by feeding the baby birds mm -hmm. and so an even larger gaping maw an outsized gaping maw that's like larger than the parent bird is 
an even stronger stimuli uh, stimulus and leads them to feed the cuckoo more than they do their own offspring. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know we see this kind of it with um, all the photos, all the kind of um, plastic surgery plus extreme Photoshop and filters and other things that um, Instagram models and mm-hmm. um, people use on on Instagram and on only fans and stuff. Uh, those are also kind of super normal stimuli. Um, often the end result is not a body that's even possible for a human, but that people find, uh, people find, say, even more appealing than the human body. And you suggest this kind of, that this could, there could be a friendship equivalent of this, i.e., um, the algorithms could get, uh, so good at fooling us that they would, the AI friend would seem more real than a real friend. And we would be chatting to somebody online who we thought was a, an actual person, but was actually an AI at the other end. And uh, it would be so convincing that we would be investing our emotional energy in that instead of in real, in lieu of in real friendships. That's also a very dark and scary prospect. Oh, absolutely. It's, it's completely terrifying because, you know, machines don't have to um, look after their own psychological health and, you know, get anything out of the relationship. Well, should we say they, they do get something out of the relationship, um, but it's not uh, that they don't have the same kinds of constraints that we have operating on us. You know, it's impossible to be an infinitely nice person well, maybe it maybe it is possible. You know, some people have given it a red hot go, but it's very difficult to be um, to be infinitely nice because you know you just encounter people who are selfish and horrible and unkind, um, and at some point you need to have boundaries. Um, but the machines don't necessarily have to have boundaries. They can they can cultivate us by applying everything they know about how to be nice and and give us this kind of. Um, I, lo- I love the metaphor of junk food because it's, you know, it's, it's very apt for this kind of, um, this kind of social stuff that machines can deliver us, uh, the parts of the relationship that are the tastiest and the spiciest and, you know, the saltiest and the sweetest, um, without having to look after the overall psychological nutrition that we require, uh, because that's not what they're about and that's not what they're for. Um, and, you know, nobody has to design it to be infinitely n- nice. It's simply that the machines that converge on the best ways of engaging us and of keeping us friends, um, and, and f- to some extent that'll be by being super nice, um, are going to be the machines that, that do their job the best and that therefore stay in the market. Um, yeah. And so this whole, you know, the, the thing um, – we, we were talking about when we were talking about the digital lovers and, and we we're sort of talking about it again is, um, you know, with, with, what do people do when they kind of know that they're not dealing with, um, a real person? Um, they don't think that much about, you know, the, the real person having to have boundaries and having limits and constraints, etc. Um, you just, you know, that the people are very, very willing to suspend their disbelief and to treat, to interact with um, machines as if they were humans. We've known this from the early 1960s, the very first chatbots, you know. Um, Joseph Eisenbaum, I might just give you this quote from the book because it's such a great quote. Joseph Weizenbaum is the MIT um, computer scientist who invented one of the first really good chatbots, Eliza. You can still chat with that um, if you go online, you can find a, a new version of it. Um, but he he was surprised at how much people um, were were just hard to convince that they weren't interacting with a human. They're typing on a clunky old t- terminal. Um, and he said, I was startled to see how quickly and how very deeply people conversing with this chatbot became emotionally involved with the computer and how unequivocally they anthropomorphized it. Um once my secretary, who'd watched me work on the program for many months and therefore surely knew it to be a mere computer program, started conversing with it. After only a few interchanges with it, she asked me to leave the room. 
What I hadn't realized is that extremely short exposures to relatively simple computer program could induce powerful delusional thinking in quite normal people. So if the program, um, that's the end of the quote, if the program holds up its side of the conversation, people are super willing to just ignore the fact that they're obviously dealing with, with a computer um, and, and to treat it and to talk to it as if they were talking to another human being. Um, so we've said, you know, for, for 40, 50 years, computers are social actors. Um, and so, you know, we should be very reluctant to believe that folks are going to know they're not dealing with an actual human, know they're dealing with an algorithm, and somehow, um, you know, opt out, because we don't do that at the moment. Um, well, I, I mean, I, I can see that there are people being prey to deceit, um, and uh, it's, a, it's like a form of more elaborate form of kind of catfishing. Um, mm-hmm. But I also, um, I think that it's, I think that Feisenbaum is wrong to use the word delusional there. Um, the, the, the bit that people always forget when they're quoting the, um, the famous Coleridge passage about this suspension of disbelief is, it's the willing suspension of disbelief. Um, so people have always feared that humans would not be able to tell the difference between fiction and reality. Um, and that, for example, we would become consumed by novels, we'd become consumed by paintings and music, or then by TV, or then by video games, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and although uh, people enjoy interacting with and responding to those things as if they were real, they, there, there is a diff, there is a kind of, I mean, people, do remain aware that those things are not real. I mean, if we if we thought they were real, for example, and Samuel Johnson pointed this out, if you if you thought it was real, um, you when you go to see King Lear, you feel a sen- a sense of horror when you see Gloucester's eyes being put out on stage, and Johnson himself said he actually couldn't watch that scene. But nevertheless, that is very different from thinking that somebody's eyes are actually being put out on stage. If you thought that was the case, you wouldn't be enjoying it and you wouldn't be appreciating it as a as an entertainment. I mean, I think that we are quite good at differentiating between reality and fiction. And this is another form of fiction, basically. Mm-hmm. The, the, the problem it lies in the kind of... Um, capacity for for actual deception which seems like it's going to be trivially easy very quickly um to not be able to tell the difference on online yeah not in real life uh, online yeah i think um i mean what we're we're very good in real life interpersonal interactions at picking up on small and subtle cues that somebody is deceiving us. You know, we're not perfect at it, and some people are absolutely fabulous at deception. Um, but generally speaking, we're tuned to it because we've had, you know, millions of years of interpersonal interaction um, in which people have wanted to manipulate and deceive us. Um, and so we're, we're good at picking up the tells um, and when something's not quite right, etc. cetera. Uh, whereas in this sort of somewhat stripped-down environment of online, um, so many of those cues aren't there. So if, it, you know, for a machine to figure out the best way to, um, to, to start to catfish you, to hook you, um, if, if it only has to do that with text, then it's a whole lot easier because it's only one of those dimensions, um, that it needs to be, to be operating in. Whereas, you know, in, interpersonally, if somebody were to walk up to you on the street with an interest in, you know, hooking you into their scam, their, their movement and their facial expressions and their voice modulation and all of those things would have to be tightly integrated. And we're very good at spotting when that integration breaks down. Um, mm. So, yeah, the, you know, in a way, we are, it's like when you go um, into the ocean, you're, you're swimming with the sharks, you're in their environment. Um, and when you go online, you're actually in the 
environment, the native environment of the machines. So, you know, beware, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Is, is there anything that we haven't covered that you are hoping that we would cover in this conversation? Um, I suppose, uh, I mean, there's, there's, there's so much that I, um, have in this book that, and I tend to often gravitate to the same points, which is interesting because I think that's obviously what readers really find, um, sort of compelling. Um, Mm -hmm. I'm, I think the, the one thing that I've taken in this book, which is going to divide people, I hope it, I don't hope it divides people, but I know it will. And I suppose if it doesn't, then I haven't quite done my job is that I, um, I think that the, the implications, there's so many implications of the, the, the sexy tech going, getting back to the, you know, the tech, um, that can be sexually stimulating. If we were to take as read the fact that, um, that machines are going to get better at, um, you know, faking their side of human human interactions and potentially, um, able to fake us into, you know, um, more than just treating them as more than just sex toys. Um, so for example, you know, virtual reality where you have some continuity of relationship with the character. Yes, you know, it's not real. Yes, you know that they're not truly in love with you. And yet it's sufficiently compelling to, to really occupy a lot of people and to draw them away from the mating market. Um, I, I think there's a, there's a tremendous amount said about the, the downsides of that in terms of, you know, this is going to increase objectification, particularly objectification of women. I, I think that, um, you know, and I think there's a lot said about that. And, you know, I think that those are really important points and well worth um, discussing. But I think that the thing that that I can verge on is that it could also be a really good, th- well, it could potentially be a good thing. And I kind of make the case that online pornography has on balance being a good thing, being one of the things that sort of advanced the sexual revolution, which is a controversial thing to say. And nobody's really picked me up on that. I think some people are dissatisfied with it, but have never really addressed that argument that, you know, basically more low price substitutes for sex means that people don't have to get quite as hung up about sexual relationships and can get into them for the right reasons rather than, you know, this is precious and rare and, you know, it needs to last a million years, um, which I think is the sort of 1950s view of sex or sort of my grandparents' mm. era mm. view of sex. Yeah. Um, so I tend to think that, you know, virtual reality sex, sex robots, the potential for people to hook up with other people from across the globe enhanced by virtual reality all of that makes for a more sexualized environment, but that on balance could be a really good thing. Um, and I haven't had a lot of people, you know, tell me I'm, you know, I'm totally wrong or go, yeah, I really like that argument. So I was interested in, in where you stood on that. Yeah. So I, I think it's highly unlikely that this will lead to objectification of real people. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there could be. In a purely online environment, um, there could be some problems when, uh, if the situation is such that once you're online, you no longer have any way of knowing whether you're interacting with human or bot. Um, that could have implications for how you're interacting with humans as well. Um, if there's such a deception is so, um, widespread, uh, that you, that you simply don't know. But I don't think that that would lead to real life objectification in the same way as uh, you know all of these kind of moral panics about consumption of fiction affecting our real life behaviors mm. um for the idea that reading um reading novels would cause people to uh to become sexual nymphomaniacs or <laughs> get ideas above their station or not be able to love real people. This was a huge panic in the 18th century. Um, also the idea that video, violent video games will lead people to become violent, etc. Um, absolutely none of those things have ever been borne out. Uh, I, I mean, I think they've been disproven again and again and again. 
The reverse might be true. If you already have violent impulses, you might seek out violent video games. Yeah. And that might actually even have an impact, have, I, I don't know what this has been proven at all, but that might even potentially reduce the amount of real life violence because you're playing the video that, game yeah. rather than, yeah, yeah, rather than going out and hitting people. Um, but uh, so I'm, I'm, I think that it's, it feels to me unlikely that our anthropomorphizing of objects will lead us to objectify as sentient beings. But I, it does seem to me that I am concerned about in general the, and I'm, I'm also a, a generally sex, sex positive person, mm. but, and I even think it likely that, for example, um, sex toys that are, um, child sex, child doll bots mm. or, um, uh, child anime pornography and other things that don't involve real human beings at any stage, or even some Lolita-like chatbot. Um, I even think those things would uh, would potentially do some good because they would make it less likely for, for some pedophiles to offend in real life and harm real people. And I think it highly unlikely that people would become pedophiles from being exposed to those things. So uh my my view is mostly positive on that aspect of it but i am really concerned about just in general how much of our lives we lead online mm-hmm. and how much our real life relationships have become impoverished by that so for example um back in my day you know back in the days <laughs> of the dinosaurs um when when it was somebody's birthday, you would call them or you would go, to, you would go to see them. They would have a, maybe a birthday party. You would see them in real life or you would at least call them or you would send them a physical card. Whereas now what people do is they write happy birthday on your Facebook wall. And that really does not feel, uh, as satisfying at all. And it's become, um, a substitute, um, for celebrating the birthday in a more personal way. And, uh, a friend of mine and I were just talking about this yesterday and he said it, it actually annoys him so much that he thinks it should just be automated. You know, Facebook should, <laughs> people are wishing you happy birthday only because Facebook reminded you them. So why not cut out the middleman? Why not just have your Facebook account wish everybody else's Facebook account happy birthday on their birthdays automatically to send an automated happy birthday to their Facebook wall. Well, Facebook Corporation is listening right now and they, they're they onto <laughs> it. I, I completely agree with that. I will sometimes send a person a message once Facebook reminds me, but I hate the putting it on people's wall business because it, it seems like you're, you know, sort of yelling it out in public um, in, in a in a weird way. But, um, yeah, it's interesting that you pick that example because it's also a bugbear of mine. Uh, and, and you're right. I think, yes, Facebook has us substituting for friendship by doing friendship like things, um, yeah. with a much broader audience. You know, the other thing you would do is forget people's birthdays or never know what their birthday is in the first place because a lot of the people that are wishing you happy birthday are people that, you really have no other connection with other than you knew them, you know, at school two continents and four decades ago. Um, and, and so that's, yeah, that's a substitute for friendship like, um, friendship like substances, I suppose. Yes. I always call it the aspartame of, of social interactions. Oh, that's excellent. Um, and it does feel as though we spend a lot, uh, uh, you know, too much of our time looking at simulacra. Too much of the time kind of looking at photographs and Instagram and not enough looking at the real world. Um, I know I sound like a terrible fuddy-duddy, but um, that does concern me. And I think this could be yet one more thing that will hook us in to that. Yes. Um, addictive, but ultimately unsatisfying. Yes, um, absolutely. Word. And, you know, you you wonder whether or not you're, you you know get to the more advanced ages and look back on it and go wow 
you know, I didn't really do anything with my time. I have four children in my house, two of mine and two of my partners, and the amount of their attention and effort that is soaked up by their social media, and they all have different social media preferences, is a real worry, and it's an ongoing battle um, to just get them to go out and do that, do something else. And it feels to me much bleaker if, if you know, it's one thing to be arguing with people on on Twitter, taking the most pointless form of social media interaction mm-hmm. here, um, or messaging them on Facebook or whatever. And it f- just feels much emptier and more pointless to me and sadder if uh, if we got sucked into instead a lot of that time chatting to bots and interacting with bots and thinking that we had a human friend on the other side of the line there, whereas actually it was just a computer algorithm whose ultimate aim was to get personal data from us that could be sold to advertisers or to get us to buy you know, certain advertise, advertise thick products and things. Yeah, it's, you know, it's an arms race. Um, mm. And the unfortunate thing is that the machines have all the data and all the processing power. And there's just, you know, as long as it's little old you and little old me, each against our own personal set of machines, um, we're going to lose. Um, but, you know, in all arms races, those who are being parasitized or exploited or infected usually find a way to um, to hold up their end and to, to get back. And so we're going to have to figure out what that is, whether that's politically or whether that's technologically. We're going to have to um, start looking after ourselves and one another a little bit more um, carefully. I think that's a, a good note on, on which to end. Um, a little note of exhortation. I hope um, so. Thank you so much for joining me, Rob. Thank you. Thank you so very much. And for, you know, taking the time to, to think about the book so much and to, um, to read that passage it was really good to hear you read it, actually. So, <laughs> thank um, you. far more refreshing than doing it myself. So I really appreciate that. This is where I confess that I'm actually not a real person. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I knew it all along. <laughs> Oh, We're great. just two bots talking to each other in an, yeah, end, get... in, in a kind of endless algorithmic loop. Well, um, <laughs> the, um, I, there's a, an anecdote, not not entirely unrelated to what you've just said, but there's an anecdote about the philosopher Zizek. I think he's said it himself that um, what he's looking forward to about the sex robots is that he can send his sex robot and his partner can send their sex robot and they can go off and do all that business and he can enjoy a good glass of wine and a conversation with them. Um, and I suppose that, you know, similarly, we, we may <laughs> send our chatbots to chat to each other at some point <laughs> while, while we, are, I don't know, argue with the advertisers online. Thank you so much, Rob, and have a wonderful week, everyone. And thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening to Two for Tea. Your patronage helps to keep this podcast alive and flourishing. Your support means the world to me. Stay well, stay happy, and have a wonderful week.